0: Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Sobral. Sport has often been seen as a vehicle for tackling social issues. It can bring attention to racism or gender inequality. But one aspect sport appears to continually struggle with is how to be more inclusive of the LGBTQ plus community. So in this episode, we're going to approach that topic by looking at the academic research in this area and attempt to understand why sport organizations are still so slow to address this community's exclusion. We have a great guest to discuss this. He was lead author of Out on the Fields, the first international study on homophobia in sport. He's published several studies on these issues in sport and was an award-winning journalist before turning his attention to academia. So just like me, except for the award-winning, he's from Monash University. It's Eric Dennison. Welcome, Eric.
1: Hello, Vitor. Thanks for having me, and thanks for doing these podcasts.
0: It's great. No, I'm glad to do it. And can I just mention one thing? Writing this and reading this was really tricky because of the LGBTQ+, which is, I think, very important to say, but very difficult when you're a journalist or any media producer. So can you, can you tell us what is the term we should be using, and why should we be using it first up?
1: It's a, that is a really important question because it goes to the heart, I think, of part of the issue in terms of seeing the resistance to addressing the discrimination that the LGBTQ plus community experiences in sport. And so LGB is obviously lesbian, gay, bisexual. Uh, T is trans. Um, Q is questioning or queer. And then plus is those who are sexuality and, and gender diverse. Now, one of the problems is that in sport research, we've been confounding that alphabet, if you will. A lot of the data that we really need around what it's like for sexual minorities and what it's like for trans youth in particular, we don't have that because we've just combined everyone into this bucket and their experiences are very different. But also um, you look at the sport organizations and they can a lot of the CEOs that I work with, they can't even say the acronym, <laughs> let alone you know, deal with this issue. So, you know, so I think it's okay to just say, you know, because we're gonna talk mostly about gay people in this in this episode. And when I say gay people, people who individuals who sleep with other individuals uh who have the same sex. Um, and so trans, uh, there's not a lot of research on trans uh people in sport. Um, but I'll use gay and trans. But when I say gay, I mean bisexual, asexual, anyone who, who's not heterosexual.
0: Thanks so much for clearing that up. Eric recently published reviewing evidence of LGBTQ plus discrimination and exclusion in sport. I have to say when I was reading this, I, I was starting to think back of my time playing in sport teams until I was in my early twenties. And, and I'm ashamed to say I wasn't helpful in making what could have been LGBTQ plus or, or gay teammates feel comfortable. And the other thing is that we we don't even know if there were any in our team, and they certainly didn't feel comfortable enough to say if they were. So how does your research help us understand what was going on then and understand this this whole issue?
1: It is interesting because we then we have parallel sort of stories in terms of me being I'm gay. and I played a fair number of sports when I was young, and I heard the language that my teammates were using, and it was constant, you know, fag, puff, homo you know, there's some words that I won't even say. And to me, it meant that they're homophobic and that if they found out I was gay, that I'd be rejected. And, um, and PE class, same thing. And then they did find out I was gay. Um, someone outed me and it, they didn't reject me outright, but it was like I turned into a non-human being. It was like I was, they're going to catch something for me. And we do see that in the literature, like it's a contagion Fear that if you know you associate with gay people when you're young, then people are going to think you're gay. So I left sport and didn't start playing sport again until I was in my late 20s and moved to Australia from Canada and joined the first gay and inclusive rugby team in Australia called the Sydney Convicts. And that is where I got the bug for research, if you will, because I think it was quite. St- shocking for a lot of us. It was for me that here i in my late twenties, you know, I have my life together. I have a professional career. I was a journalist, you know, before. And yet kids who are like 17, 18, 19, were joining the team and we're telling these harrowing stories of discrimination that they're experiencing. And I think a lot of older gay men and, and women are kind of in la la land. We think we've got gay marriage and we've, you know, tackled discrimination potentially in the workplace. We have, but Kids are really suffering uh, in a lot in school environments, um, but particularly sport environments. And so so that got me interested in trying to figure out what's going on here. Why haven't we seen the kind of change in sport that we've seen in other parts of society? And and that was the beginning of the research journey.
0: And like you say, it's so personal for you. I sometimes think that can be difficult when you have such a personal connection to a research topic to actually go out and research it. So so how did you approach that and and how did that uh, did that make the the research more difficult?
1: It was actually quite difficult, particularly because we were doing a lot of measures of of homophobia and seeing some of the comments that it, kids, boys, young men would be writing on on the surveys, but I think, you know, if you're going to do research, it needs to be something that drives you and gets you out of bed. Um, otherwise, I think it can be quite defeating in the current climate of research. And this certainly gets me out of bed. And I think and I've been quite surprised. And I guess the main reason why I'm doing the research isn't to say that there's a problem. It's to figure out why there's a problem and develop solutions. And... Thankfully, we've had some great allies and supporters in the charitable sector, in the government sector. Um, Victorian Health Promotion Foundation in particular has been quite engaged in this as a public health agency, and they've um, supported us to do a number of reviews, literature reviews and systematic reviews to answer the question, what's going on here? And so that's what we've published in the SMR paper. And the reason why we did the reviews is really to figure out what is the barrier? Because in the research previously, the barrier was described as a lack of evidence. There was a lack of proof that there was a problem, which was therefore preventing sport managers, sport executives from doing anything about it. Um, So the big question for us was, is that still the case?
0: just for the, for the sport practitioners who might not have the academic background, when you say literature review, systematic literature review, what exactly are you, what did you mean by that? What exactly were you looking for?
1: Good point. And I think even um, to give people a, this sense of the breadth of the research. So when we did the systematic review, we registered it with PROSPERO, which is generally where you register um, medical systematic reviews. And what it means is that you you systematically you, you come up with a plan for searching every single source of data you can possibly think of. And for this, we didn't just sort uh, look at databases, your conventional you know academic library databases. Um, or Google or Google Scholar. We also went and, and trolled through quite a few organizations' websites. Um, we reached out to quite a few leaders within the sport industry, and um, and we found quite a bit of data. In fact, the suggestion that there's a lack of evidence is clearly not the case. Uh, particularly in the past five years, um, I'll steal a term that uh, a researcher who, who I think she wrote a. Uh, public health research, there, there's been a veritable explosion of research on uh, LGBTQ+, plus, but particularly gay youth in the past five years. And that's because they've started to uh, add sexuality identity questions to the huge public health surveys that are being done. So the Centers for Disease Control and others, they've added that. So that's getting us this really rich data that is is important for us to understand the extent of the problems that this community is facing, and it's pretty dire. I mean, for example, the CDC's research, they show that gay boys play sport at around half the rate of straight boys, um, gay girls as well, but pretty much across every negative health outcome, suicide, self-harm, drug and alcohol abuse, victimization, are gay kids, um, and more recently they have trans kids now as well, are at high risk of experiencing those things relative to heterosexual youth.
0: So you looked at this research over across a, a broad range of time. I think ten years. What did you find in that in those ten years? What what's changed? What, what was in there?
1: It's interesting because I think there is, and there are some scholars who make claims that homophobia is no longer a problem in sport, off very small samples, <laughs> and the research was primarily done before 2010. So uh, that's definitely not the case, you know. So I led an international study called Out in the Fields, which had nearly 10,000 participants that looked at primarily LGB people but also heterosexuals and across six countries um 80% of participants uh had witnessed or experienced homophobia in sport and that was subsequently uh replicated by a study backed by the EU of all the EU countries with uh nearly 6000 participants and um they replicated the particularly the finding of 80% of people had witnessed or experienced homophobic or transphobic behavior in sport but they said just in the past year so Overwhelmingly, you see in the research, there's about 150 quantitative studies done on this topic um, in various countries. And to put that in context, when you when we've looked for studies on racism or sexism, looking at prevalence, you know, how how frequent say athletes hear sexist or racist language. You can't find them (laughs) so that's the that's the extent of research that's been done on this problem and i think sally shaw who's a researcher from new zealand i think she she described it really well where this issue has been extensively problematized but we don't really have much research on any solutions to try and figure out how to stop this discrimination that this community is experiencing
0: before we get to the solutions what what do you think are the main problems in uh, including the gay community in, in sport. Because like I said, at the time when I was playing sport, I didn't even think we considered it. Uh, I, I think that was probably a major problem back then, but perhaps some things have changed since then.
1: And I and I won't jump ahead of to myself too much in terms of papers that we have coming out soon. But what I can say is that I was one of those people that thought it was a homophobia problem, as a, an attitude problem. And that doesn't seem to actually be the case. It seems to be quite normative. No one's actually done anything in sport to change the behavior of, of young people. And why haven't they done anything? That seems to be the real issue here is that there's a lot of resistance within the sports sector to addressing this problem. And we don't know why, and that's an area of research that needs to be developed, but I think we have a few ideas. And one of them is that a fair number of studies have found that men who play sport are significantly more likely to be homophobic, have negative attitudes toward gay people, than the general population or females. And so they're in charge of sport. And so if they're inherently homophobic or more homophobic, particularly older generations, they're not gonna wanna engage in an area that they already have bias against. There's also the discomfort uh, and, and fear around even getting the acronym right, like we were talking about earlier. You know, it's a mouthful, LGBTQ+, should I, should I include the I? Should I not include the I? Should I can I just say gay? Is that, Am I going to get trolled on social media? And, and CEOs that I've talked to in Canada um, and, and Australia who run governing bodies or, or sporting teams, they say that's the reason why they haven't engaged with this issue because they're worried about getting it wrong and being attacked. And it is a complex issue, you know, like we talked about, sexuality and gender identity get confounded constantly by researchers like us, but also by the general population, and, you know, the bullies, the kids in in sport. And so we need to understand the differences, because there's very different experiences for those populations. And so I think it's almost like too hot to touch, you know, it's too complex, but there's definitely resistance going on. There's definitely something going on in terms of that research. I mentioned New Zealand, Sally Shaw, she studied this task force that was set up with the explicit extent. Their remit was come up with solutions for homophobia in sport. And they met and they, uh, there was a few on the task force who were sort of in denial of that. There was a problem, but at the end of the day, They didn't do anything. (laughs) They basically disbanded, claiming that they're now going to deal with homophobia as part of their broad diversity initiatives, but that hasn't actually happened. None of them have actually done anything. So it it shows how challenging this area of inclusion is and diversity, because even when people are told to deal with it and given direct instructions and lots of support um, who are running sport organizations, they still don't deal with it. So it's a it's a it's a mystery isn't it? It's it's a very odd particularly in this era where we see so much change and action around diversity in sport that this one area of diversity you know I know I've been talking a lot and so I probably have another question but you know That's I think the thing that stands out for me the most and this was stunning when we when we sort of figured it out was there's been nearly a dozen studies in Australia particularly in Victoria that have provided really good evidence of the need to address discrimination as community experience in sport. So you would think that all these studies, many of them funded by the Victorian government, that then you'd see this community in the long-term sport strategies that the government agencies make. None of them are mentioned LGBTQ So the Victorian government put out theirs. There was not a single mention of LGBTQ plus people. The um, Australian government recently put out theirs, and there's not a single mention. you know they mention every single other group you can possibly imagine. So even at the government level, you see this resistance to engage with this issue, and it's 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 really confounding. It's really confusing. Um, and we definitely need to figure out how to overcome this resistance.
0: I guess in Australia we would say it's gone in the too hard basket. It seems that from the elite level or from, from the managerial level, that that was the case. What about from from the ground level? Particularly, I, I found that really interesting. You mentioned that the younger audience is still getting this discrimination, and we tend to think that they're the more enlightened ones. They're the woke. Uh, they're the woke group. So, where, where were the issues there? Yeah,
1: and in our research, we find that around seventy five percent of teenage boys. 65 to 75% use homophobic, say they've used homophobic language in the past two weeks. And so these are slurs like fag. It's not homo or that's gay. These are words like fag, which are, you know, pretty extreme end of the spectrum of homophobic language. And what's bizarre is that they self-report that behavior. We asked them, in the past two weeks, have you used words like, <laughs> we don't call it homophobic language. And they say they use this language um, you know, almost constantly in sport, but they don't seem to be doing it with any homophobic intent per se. And we don't, when we've done statistical analysis, we don't find a, uh, much of a relationship between homophobic attitudes and homophobic language use. So those with positive attitudes are just as likely to use homophobic language as those with negative attitudes. It primarily seems to be a normative problem where no one has gone into sport to change the language. Like I said earlier, the sport leaders are resistant to do anything on this. They kind of do tokenistic things, if you will. So we see corporate level pride games adopted widely in the United States, particularly. It's not clear what how much benefit those have at that sort of elite level. We have seen some evidence that pride games work at the more community level but other than that there's really nothing going on uh, to change this behavior they'll occasionally do some tv commercials or they'll come out and make some announcement or you know i think I, uh, ryan store who's um who's a scholar I, I greatly respect you know he says he's found there's just a lack of meaningful action it's just a, a bunch of talk a bunch of pr yeah. probably because like you said it's too hot to touch
0: yeah, it seems quite superficial. So let's get to some substantive solutions that uh, that maybe you've got from your research. Firstly, what, what can uh, scholars do? What, what can academics do to, to try and help uh, find solutions to this issue?
1: Well, in the past five years, the public health researchers and agencies and, and government bodies that are responsible for public health have been doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of getting us the data we need. Um, we didn't know whether there were disparities in sport participation between LGB youth and their peers. Now we do. It's, you know, they're quite big disparities and that's thanks to their um, hard work. Now, the reality is that if you're listening to this, you probably are in the sport sector. Sport is chaotic, it's disorganized, it's poorly resourced. It's, you know, so could you imagine a public health researcher who does most of their, spends most of their time in hospitals or structured environments trying to navigate sport to figure out how to test interventions to solve this problem. They would give up in probably 10 minutes when they show up at a community club and realize training has been canceled and no one bothered to tell anyone, you know, that's the standard fair. Someone forgot the, you know, the keys to the lights that day or, you know, whatever, you know, the list is endless. Balls um, have been stolen. Exactly. Balls have been stolen. You know, the committee members have had a fight and, you know, the team, the club's disbanded, you know, You know, we're laughing, but this is the reality of sport. You know, that's community sport. It's, I think sports scholars get that and they're willing, you know, a lot of us are athletes and former athletes and worked in the sports sector. So we just, to us, that's normal and that doesn't really phase us. And I think it's a real opportunity for sports scholars to team up with the public health researchers who, of course, can access large medical research funding (laughs) schemes as well, which is great. And because they want to solve this problem, you've seen large agencies, um, you know, even the IOCs put out a statement calling the, you know, the LGBT community is at high risk in sport environments, and there's a need for solutions. So there's a clear will, at least in those who are who are sort of looking at this from a public health point of view to, to drive change. I think sport researchers have a really important role to play now in actually doing that research because they have the skills, ability, interest, and tenacity to do this kind of, these kinds of investigations.
0: And for sport practitioners, we mentioned how difficult their jobs are uh, in running sport. What kind of solutions can, can they think about so they can pick that, uh, that issue up from the too hard basket and start uh, start looking at it and try and bring about some, some real change? Uh, firstly, before that, perhaps helping them to do that might be to, to distinguish between the gender issues and, and sexuality issues.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's because there is a lot of media backlash um, to uh, gender issues. We saw just recently, you know, world rugby is essentially banned trans women from rugby playing rugby, and so so that's an example of how there's different solutions needed. We need to figure out how to stop this state and and governing body sanctioned banning of trans young people because there's always this talk about trans women. It's actually trans kids these days that are playing sport and are being excluded. And so you know That's kind of a separate issue Then we need to stop homophobic language. Um, or for women, a lot of it comes down to the stigma. So in our research um, with rug, female rugby players, around 95% of them say that most people think that they're a lesbian just for playing female rugby. And so that stigma is a real barrier to participation. So those are just three issues that illustrate how different the problems are. Um, and then, so scholars need to stop confounding the problems, and we need to start looking for tailored solution for each community. But I think separately there are a lot of sport managers. So I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush. And I've worked with quite a few who really do want to drive change. They're really interested in this and they don't know how um, and they don't know what solutions to implement because there's uh, other than the research we've done, there's no other research which is tested solutions, um, tested programs to help drive change to behavior. So I think it comes down to them, well, they can reach out to us. <laughs> we can give them some uh, evidence and, and data that they could use to try and shape programs. Um, but I think it also comes down to not doing more research on the problem. We have more than enough research. And I think that's kind of the go-to because it's, it's almost like this vicious cycle of Uh, It's almost like everything's been put in a parking lot because, oh, we just need a bit more data, a bit more research. Well, there's lots of data. So read the SMR. There's a couple of papers coming out, uh, which will provide you with lots of data you can use to put in your presentations to your board and uh, of stats and figures and, and also the benefits of diversity and inclusion in this area. But I guess it's just push through and recognize that you are going to face barriers internally. There is elevated levels of homophobia within the sport sector, but most people do want to do the right thing. And I think it's around focusing on the impacts on kids and the harm to kids from this discrimination, because ultimately that's what we want to stop. And I don't think anyone can argue with that. I don't think that, you know, anyone in their right mind would say, oh no, we should let, you know, gay kids be called homo peg nonstop in sport environments. We should let that happen and not do anything about it. So I think it's kind of like a motherhood and apple pie issue that we're talking about here, but we just need some focus on it. We, you know, and I I don't necessarily think the problem's are going to be that hard to solve, but we do need some attention on it. And that's what we're hoping that this the paper that we published in the SMR helps to do generate that interest, give people a foundation to show them there's lots of evidence of the problem. Now we need to focus on
0: solutions. It's the time for action, isn't it? The time for actual yes. research, perhaps even.
1: Yes, yes. No, I know. I'll steal. Um, the, uh, Janet Fink says, you know, we need to stop admiring the problem. And I definitely think that, or, you know, Sally Shaw says, get out of the armchair. I really think it, it is hard to do solution-focused research because it means you need to go out and do fieldwork. But the rewards are that with this kind of research, you're literally saving the lives of kids because we, the suicide rates are quite alarming for this community. And we know that sport can deliver a lot of good for this population. If you look at it that way, this is very rewarding area of research. I sound like I'm trying to sell this area of research, and I am.
0: <laughs> I think it's very important. And, and I think your research is, is really going to be helpful and, and definitely the solutions, uh, like you say, could save lives and, and definitely make a more inclusive atmosphere in, in, in the dressing rooms and on the sports field. And I think that's actually really important too.
1: Yeah, and that's what I think that is the most important piece you just raised. When we do um, surveys with, um, and they're all heterosexual, pretty much, or they say they're heterosexual in, in in adolescent males, teams, they all want this language to stop. It's like, overwhelmingly, like 75-80%. And you, you're like, well, why would they want that? It doesn't really affect them. Well, it does. About 35% of them say they've been the target of homophobic language in the past um, season. So you know, it makes sport more fun for everyone. And I think it, you know, it's kind of like that no jerk rule. It kind of gives the jerk the license to be a jerk. If this homophobic sexist and to a lesser degree, but it still happens, racist language is used and it remains unchallenged. Um, And that's what we need to figure out some solutions to change the norms around this behavior in sport. So it's fun for
0: everyone. Thanks so much for that, Eric. I really think this is an important issue, like you say, and hopefully your research and others' research can really help sport organisations and academics finally get to grips with this and make some real change.
1: Thanks so much for the interest, Vitor.
0: And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Please head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode, reviewing evidence of LGBTQ plus discrimination and exclusion in sport. That's it for this episode, but keep a look out. There'll be more dropping in your favorite podcast player soon. Until then, it's bye for now.